Come, Lord Jesus, come. I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Today, the third Sunday of Advent is also known as Gaudete, or Rejoice Sunday. Taken from the first word of our introit, Rejoice, which comes from the letter to the Philippians that we heard earlier. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We also heard from the prophet Zephaniah that we are to rejoice because God's presence has brought not judgment, but joy and mercy. Many in, in the Episcopal Church use a pink candle in their Advent wreaths for this Sunday. Many churches have rose-colored vestments to indicate that this Sunday is a reprieve from the message of repentance in Advent. This message of joy, you'll notice, is not a request. Rather, it is placed in the imperative. It's not a suggestion, a command. It's a command. Rejoice. But this is not the only command that we hear today, though it's the best one. For in our gospel, we hear a continuation of John the Baptist's activities from last week when he called people to prepare the way of the Lord, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So today we hear this from John. You brood of vipers, he commands, repent bear fruit. John the Baptist warns his listeners that they can't rest easy just because they have Abraham as their father. After all, God can raise up faithful followers from the very stones. Even now, John says, the axe is at the root of the tree, and if the tree doesn't bear good fruit, it will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. In other words, don't rest on your laurels. Don't rest on your history. It's sort of like someone walking in here and saying to us, don't think you're safe just because you're baptized. John warns that our public identities, our outward appearances, won't protect us from judgment. Rather, our lives must bear fruit. This is a hard message. Who wants to hear it? And yet throngs of people have streamed out of Jerusalem, gathering in the wilderness to listen to John the Baptist preach because they know something is wrong in their lives. They're at the end of their rope with the Roman occupation. They fear that they have been forgotten by God and then they hear these terrifying words from John and they are scared, they are desperate and understandably they cry out, what then should we do? What then should we do? What then should I do? You faithful dear ones are here because 
you too want to know what to do. You dear ones, sit through these Advent readings of repentance, readings that warn and promise of God coming again in judgment. Perhaps you know there is something wrong in your life. Maybe you worry that you've been forgotten. Maybe you just feel that, well, there is something more. Well then, what should we do? Well, if you're anything like me, you think it ought to be something big, something bold and courageous and life-changing, and maybe it is, but that's not what John the Baptist says. Rather, John answers to people's own lives, to who they are and how they live right now. In other words, the kingdom of God is coming. It has begun. It is here now in the lives that we are actually living. So John the Baptist answers the question, what then should we do? And to everyone he says, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise to the tax collectors and the soldiers who are locals, Jews working for the Roman oppressors, John says, be fair to those you deal with. Collect no more than is prescribed. Don't extort money. Don't use your position for your own gain. John does not tell them that they must quit their jobs and start anew and give everything up. Rather, he says, bear fruit where you are. God cares about your life and how you're living it as it is now. So what does that mean for us? Well, what do you, what do I have enough of? Perhaps you're thinking about money, or food, or clothes, all of which are wonderful to share with those in need. But I'd like to share a story I heard recently that might help us think in some other ways. A priest, a friend of a friend, recently had to go to the ER last week for a broken wrist. While preparing to go for the x-rays, a med tech came into her room, the one who was going to put the cast on. The priest noticed from the tech's name tag that his name was Muhammad. And so she said to him, a little nervously, I know that this may be an assumption, but are you Muslim? And he hesitated then, but he said yes. The priest then tells Muhammad that she's a priest, a Christian, and she is very sorry for what is going on. She says she has written a letter asking Donald Trump to change his rhetoric, but mainly she says to Muhammad, I just wanted to say, I am so sorry. And Muhammad begins to cry. 
He tells the priest how scared he is, that he's been taking night shifts so that he doesn't have to go out during the day and be seen. He said he was afraid when the priest asked him if he was Muslim because usually the question has been followed by the patient asking to see somebody else. And this was the first time a Christian had spoken to him recently without hatred. And then the priest began to cry and she promised to pray for him and his family. And a few minutes later, the ER doctor came in and thanked the priest for her words to Muhammad and he too asked her to pray for him and for his family. What did this priest have? What did she have enough of? Compassion? Time? The privilege and authority of being white and Christian and a minister in our society? She was hurt and harried, a priest with a broken wrist in Advent. But she had privilege and kindness to spare, so she shared it with someone who was lacking both. So what do you have enough of? What do you do in your day-to-day life? Can you bring fairness and kindness to your workplace, to your school? Can you be satisfied with your work so that you don't take dissatisfaction out on others? What I think John the Baptist is saying here is that we are to bear fruit here now in our lives as they are, whether we're teachers or lawyers, nurses, or IT professionals, librarians, or florists, or hairstylists, or bankers, or therapists, or parents, or neighbors, or retired, or on the altar guild, or serving on the vestry, or volunteer tutors. You get the idea. We don't have to be superhuman or travel across the globe to work with the poorest of the poor. We don't have to even be extraordinarily courageous. But we do have to repent of where we have gone wrong. We've got to change our hearts and our minds. And then our changed hearts and minds must bear fruit. And then, when the time comes to be judged, and come it will, though we know neither the day nor the hour, when God comes to separate the beautiful fruit of the wheat of our lives from our chaffy, dry hearts, we will be able to rejoice. For the God who comes to judge us is also the God who came first to love us. The God who will judge us is the one who always, surprisingly, judges with mercy. So I say, beloved, rejoice. Rejoice.